0: Morning everyone. Good to be with you. My microphone on? It is, it is, it's on, it's on. Um, I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. Is anyone feeling tempted to sing along? Because the greatest love of all is happening to me. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself. It is the greatest love of all. Whitney Houston, 1985. Whitney was uh, ahead of her time, apparently. She had a great voice, uh, but she was a false teacher. And our society has taken those sentiments to extremes that I doubt Whitney Houston could have imagined. Uh, Our world is full of innocent sounding sayings that communicate really dangerous and destructive ideas. Uh, My mother-in-law and our niece came to visit back in the summer and our niece was wearing a t-shirt that says do more of what makes you happy and that's just kind of the cultural air we breathe follow your heart uh, live your truth be your best self these have become ever-present messages in our culture uh, from pop music teenagers. I don't know what those Whitney Houston songs would be right now, but you should probably assess. I'm certainly not telling you that it's a sin to uh, listen to secular music, but you should assess the music that you have rehearsed and the lyrics that you have memorized that you sing and assess whether they accord with the revelation of God's Word. Whether it's our pop, yes, you can say amen to that. Uh, Whether it's pop music, whether it's TV commercials, don't watch a lot of TV, but we know BK, have it your way. Do you know what? You rule, yeah, yeah. Um, we are a nation that has tragically glamorized and gloried in what our creator has explicitly told us that he hates. Pride. Pride is a serious insidious threat to our souls. And in saying that, I just want to make clear at the beginning of this sermon, I'm not particularly interested in calling attention to uh, those rainbow flag waving houses or businesses that are so prevalent in our community or to politicians who care more about uh, sexual liberty than they do about religious liberty. Those are real issues. I'm not mainly concerned about them. I'm talking about us, actually. Uh, Those things outside, which are real and are serious and are cultural dangers, they pale in comparison to the havoc that pride can wreak inside of you and me. But God, in his kindness, has given us words in the scriptures to warn us about those deadly dangers that we might turn from pride. And we're going to look at one such passage this morning as we return in our study uh, of the book of Acts. You can open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Uh, If you wanna follow along in one of the Bibles provided there under the seats, you can find the passage we're going to be reading on page 921. If you happen to be with us and you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd be delighted for you to take that Bible as uh, a gift from us and continue reading it. We'd love to help you get to understand and know what the scriptures say. Uh, we're picking up in verse 18 of Acts chapter 12, and we're, we're stepping into uh, the middle of a story. When I say a story, please don't hear make-believe. Uh, the story that I'm going to read from Acts 12, there is a a very interesting account of this event in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus. I might, make, I might quote from Josephus. Rob Miles is particularly excited about that. Where's Rob? I, I, know, I saw him earlier. There he is. Rob would be very excited if I quoted from Josephus. you want to, any questions about Josephus, you could ask Rob after the service. Uh, I'm just highlighting that to to, to remind you we're in the book of Acts. We talk about stories. Maybe we talk about characters. We're reading real events. We are reading history. Josephus has a very vivid account of this event that we're going to read in the scriptures this morning. And again, we're picking up in the middle of a story. Peter uh, had been imprisoned by uh, King Herod who was planning to execute him as he had already executed the apostle James and he was going to put Peter to death after the Jewish feast of unleavened bread had concluded uh, but when Peter was sleeping uh, and we talked about this last year in the first or last year last week in the first uh, part of this chapter uh, an angel of the Lord appeared in the middle of the night and freed Peter, who immediately went to a prayer meeting that was taking place in the home of a disciple named Mary. And, and though these disciples at Mary's house had been praying for Peter, they didn't actually believe that it was Peter at first. They thought when the, when the servant girl brought them word that Peter was at the gate, they thought she was out of her mind. But eventually they did uh, get Peter, and Peter gave glory to God and declared how he had been delivered from Herod's sword. And uh, we might wonder, it was a wonderful and dramatic uh, deliverance that we considered last Sunday, but we might wonder what happened back in that prison cell once everyone woke up the next morning. And that's what we're going to read about this morning as we continue in Acts chapter 12. So I'm gonna pray briefly for the Lord's help because it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, people, the flesh is no help at all. So we need to pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come to the word, and I'm gonna read Acts 12, verses 18 through 24, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for hard words there's wonderful, sweet, comforting words in Scripture, and we thank you for those. And there's, there, there are hard, challenging, uh, even sickening portions of God's Word, and we do thank you for those as well, because we need all of your words for our instruction. And so we pray that you would teach us, that you would give us life today by your Spirit, and conform us more to the likeness of Jesus. We ask for this in his name. Amen. Amen. Acts 12, verses 18 through 24. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Uh, this is God's word, brothers and sisters. Uh, I can't think of a better summary of what we just read than to just take the, the words that nebuchadnezzar declared at the end of his humbling as we heard that passage read from daniel four earlier so i'm stealing my outline this morning from king nebuchadnezzar Uh, the, the the sermon this morning is those who walk in pride he is able to humble so point number one those who walk in pride uh, as you hear this sermon, I'm reminded of something that a pastor friend of mine says just about every week to his church. I don't say it every week, but I, I would encourage you as you hear this sermon to try to remember that God loves you. Those who walk in pride. Uh, the word pride is not used here in this passage that I read in Acts 12, but Herod whom we meet in this passage, who we hear described in this passage, he is an arrogant man. He is a self-exalting man, a self-promoting man, a God-ignoring glory hog. He is a man filled with pride. And we see that especially at the end of the passage when we're told he did not give glory to God, but I think we see it even in the first verses that I read there in verses 18 and 19, there's this disturbance over what has happened. Where is Peter? And Herod responds, not with repentance, but with resistance. He would rather kill innocent people than confess and cry out to God for mercy. He's, he's angry at people. It's totally irrational as if 16 soldiers would have conspired against him somehow to free Peter, though they knew that they would be executed if they were to allow Peter to escape. But 16 soldiers, Herod concludes, rather than concluding God must be with this man, I must repent, rather than conclude that he kills them all. Because Herod was a proud man. So he goes down from Judea to Caesarea, and he spends several months, uh, we know that from the history, maybe even up to a year, there. And, And Luke tells us of a conflict between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. We don't know why Herod was angry. I wonder, I don't know, this is only speculation, but I wonder if we're not told anything about why Herod was angry, because he really had no good reason to be angry, because proud people are just angry for no good reason. That is speculation. What we do know is that Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, These two cities were port cities and their economy was dependent upon shipping, and yet because of his anger, Herod had disrupted the trade and especially the goods that were going into Tyre and Sidon, particularly grain, so that the people in Tyre and Sidon were being deprived of food. And so desperate for their basic necessities of life, they're able to persuade uh, this man who's called the Chamberlain, or there's a personal aid or assistant to Herod, man by the name of Blastus, I think that's a cool name, uh, many, uh, you know, Jay prayed for the, the babies yet to be born. You've got a baby boy. I, I don't know. I think Blastus is under the radar. Uh, that's a cool name, okay? So what I don't know, we don't know what Blastus did, but it seems as though Blastus was able to work some kind of a a, a deal and pacify the anger of Herod. And there's a particular day that is... Uh, being held, it was a, there was a festival celebrating the emperor, and Herod uses this day, it seems, to announce the, uh, the cessation of these sanctions against Tyre and Sidon. He's going to make an oration and a speech, and he's arrayed, we're told, in royal robes. Josephus tells us Uh, that they were garments that were glistening silver, and particularly they were shining brilliantly that day in the morning sun, and it caused the people to acclaim. They probably didn't really believe this, but this was what we call flattery. Herod obviously had great power over them, and so they're proclaiming, oh, he's a god, not a man. And it, it does seem like Herod is enjoying this. Uh, he seems to have been making effort with the, the, the pomp and the pageantry of this occasion to let the people of Tyre inside know that he was really somebody. They were not just coming to beg from some tenant farmer, but he held sway over their food supply uh, more like God than like a simple farmer who they might trade with. And, and then we see the root of his evil and we see the root of pride there in verse 23. He did not give God the glory. But rather, he he grasped for it himself. And the severity of the punishment, which we will come to as we consider the second point, but the severity of the punishment is meant to testify to the heinousness of the crime. Uh, I, I don't feel like I need to talk a whole lot about pride because the two of you in your prayers did it so well and so faithfully, and I'm, I'm not discouraged. You're actually going to get a little bit shorter sermon because they captured it so well in the prayers that they have prayed. But pride is a great and outrageous and disgusting evil. Uh, uh, one author, Jason Meyer, puts it this way, what makes pride so singularly repulsive to God is the way that pride contends for supremacy with God himself. Pride is not one sin among many, but is a sin in a class by itself. Other sins lead the sinner further from God, but pride is particularly heinous in that it attempts to elevate the sinner above God. That's what we see in in the life and example of herod pride is self obsession preoccupation with ourselves and it is a lie it is a very horrible lie about reality it it says basically i am worth thinking about all the time it is an orientation that wrongly assumes that everything revolves around me, that everything to horribly pervert the wonderful praise that Paul gives to God at the end of Romans chapter 11, it is to claim and to think and to believe and live as if everything is from me and through me and to me. To me be glory forever.
1: Pride is insane. It is insanity. It is like the moon, one, there's one, what's that book, it's called Full Moon Rising. Kids, I should say tell your parents to buy you a book, but uh, kids, there's a wonderful book. It's a little book called Full Moon Rising. It pride is like the moon deciding to glory in and boast in its great light, when all the while it's totally dependent upon the sun for what it glories in. We are Creatures. god God is is our creator creator. we are are a moment moment. we're a a vapor we are are men i said i would would quote from this passage passage.
0: we are are here at breakfast breakfast yesterday we are just
1: god God is is eternal eternal. he holds holds our our breath in his hands. hands And yet, and yet we would we cast, cast him aside and we, and would, we would glory, glory in, in our, our own, own strength, strength and accomplishments. Or we or would we look would down upon others who, who don't, don't measure, measure up to our, our expectations, expectations as if as we, as we have, the have the ability to produce to anything, anything good, good in, and in ourselves. ourselves.
0: Pride claims, claims to be the author of what, of what is really is a gift.
1: The Apostle, the Apostle Paul, Paul, would, Paul write would write to the proud Corinthians, Corinthians, what do, you, what do you, have you have that you did not you did receive? receive. The, the answer is, the nothing. Answer is nothing. nothing. He says, but, but if you, you, if if you, you receive, receive it, it why, why do you, why you boast? that if you, as as you
0: Credit for the work of God and pass it off as our own. Someone, I don't remember who it is actually. Who, where did the, someone has called pride an act of cosmic plagiarism trying to pass off as our own what really is of the Lord. Pride defies God. It denies God. It ignores God. It refuses to honor God as God. And I, I do hope that you could just see as Jeff got up here and prayed, I mean, was there not, you know, sometimes they're audible, sometimes they're just in the soul, was there not an mm? As he prayed and just put his finger on, on some particular expressions and manifestations of this wretched inward absorption. And God is justly and rightly angry at all human pride. The Apostle Paul says in the beginning of the book of Romans, before he gets to the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, He speaks of the bad news of what it is that we need to be delivered from. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And as he goes on to expound that godlessness and that suppression of the truth, he says in Romans 1.21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That really is the heightened essence of pride is to know God, to know that he exists, to know that he's there, to know that he's the creator and fountain of every good thing and to not honor him as God, to refuse to give God the glory in our lives. In the Lord's Uh, Providence this week as I was studying about pride I found myself dealing with a situation where someone that I care about is ignoring me. I don't believe I've done any wrong to this person. I I think I have cared for this person, surely not perfectly, but I think genuinely and sincerely over a period of many years Uh, and I'm being ignored. I've made repeated phone calls and text messages, earnestly inquiring, I'm, are you okay? Just tell me you're okay. Have I done something to you? Have I offended you? Have I wronged you, sinned against you in some way? Have I failed to do something that you were expecting or counting me, uh, on me to do? And I'm getting absolutely nothing in response. It's like I don't exist. And it's frustrating. I didn't realize how frustrating it is. There have been occasions over the years where someone is angry at me and they express their anger to me. And I think that's actually better than being completely ignored and treated as if I don't exist. And if I, who myself have also wronged and offended people and failed to reply to their text messages, or not been as sympathetic or as deliberate in my care as I ought to have been, if I can be frustrated at being treated as if I don't exist, what then of the creator, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, whom we so frequently and consistently ignore? He makes promises to us and we just don't think about them when we're in the midst of hardship. He gives us commandments and we just ignore them to do our own thing. He showers us with blessing after blessing after blessing and we do thank him occasionally, but we just act as if we expect them most often. And when something is amiss then, we wonder why. Pride is a very outrageous and disgusting thing. And I hope you can see that it's not just a Herod thing or a Nebuchadnezzar thing or an LGBTQ plus thing. It's a human thing. It's an us thing. And God, because he is good, is committed to exposing pride and destroying pride. God, the scriptures say very simply and clearly, God opposes the proud, James 4, 6. Pride is on a collision course with God himself, and the date has been set. Isaiah 2, 12 says, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought Lo. Now that word in Isaiah 2 is talking about a day yet to come, the day of the Lord. But for Herod, that day came on the very day that he himself had appointed for promoting and declaring his own greatness. The irony of that. And that brings us to our second point. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Look again with me at verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. If you're, if you're visiting today, that was, a, that's, I, I, I get a lot, I bet a lot of you, you come into these gatherings and someone hands you a bulletin. You don't even really look at the front of the bulletin. Now now you're looking at the front of the bulletin. If you're a visitor today, you probably were more likely to look at the front of the bulletin. And that was a pretty like strange word to have on the front of the bulletin. Uh, Jake, I was thinking of the sermon you preached a few, uh, couple months back. We were talked about how I got up here and you're like, I'm, I've got the text on dashing the little ones into the rocks. It's like, if you walked in this morning, it's like, okay. <laughs> he was struck down and he was eaten by worms. And breathes his last. And we got to talk about that. And I've asked you to remember that God loves you. Herod was a proud man. And failing to give God the glory that he is due is so vile and so reprehensible that it leads to one being eaten by worms and then breathing his last. Did you notice the order of the words in acts 12:23 he was eaten by worms and breathed his last not he breathed his last and he was eaten by worms which itself would be horrible luke did not have to give us this detail he could have simply said an angel of the lord struck him down because he did not give god the glory and he breathed his last but he decided to tell us that Herod was eaten by worms. So I, if you would allow me to uh, repulse you a little bit so that we can understand the Bible's teaching on something very serious and important. And I'm asking you to try to remember that God loves you. Uh, there's a doctor who wrote a book in the 1970s. Uh, he's a French uh, man, Jean Sloat Morton. And he has written that the cause of Herod's death was the rupture of a cyst that was formed by a tapeworm. Um, Over the past few weeks, I've uh, been—it's a little bit better, but it's—it's still there a little bit. But it was worse a couple weeks ago. I was just having this feeling, like it didn't matter what I was eating, I just kind of always was feeling ravenous. And and you know, if you when you Google that, (laughs) ever do. I, I'm, yeah, you'll read about tapeworms, it's, the odds are very unlikely, please do not Google that, the odds are very unlikely, but, but the rupture of such a cyst that is formed by a tapeworm, this is what Dr. Morton says in his book, the rupture of such a cyst may release as many as two million worms into the body's system. And what I understand, and you know, I'm seeing that Dr. Widener is not here. Okay, maybe he could correct this another time. But I've read this. I have a reliable uh, witness here in Dr. Morton. But um, these, these worms are, are self-contained unit which has both male and female parts. So it's self-perpetuating and self-reproducing. And so this, this tapeworm goes on and on. And so that's how this... this these worms just reproduce inside the body and this cyst looks like a sack that expands and expands and expands until it can't expand anymore and then it bursts and it releases all of these worms into the body and then, and when that rupture occurs, uh, what happens is that, is that a person, Herod, is literally eaten alive from the inside out. It was an intense pain. There were no relief. And Josephus tells us, in fact, let me just read you this little quote from Josephus's Antiquities. Uh, he said, A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. So he was in writhing agony for five days, and then he departed this life. And what's really horrifying, at least as I thought about this, is that those agonizing five days were only the beginning of Herod's ruin and pain and misery. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 tells us, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Not after that all go to live in a better place. But it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 7 that God will render to each one according to his works. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And as I, as I myself was thinking about that wrath and fury, and as I'm thinking about someone eaten by worms, I could not help but think of Jesus' own teaching. If this sounds harsh and this sounds severe, maybe this sounds un-Jesus-like. Jesus, gentle and lowly, meek and mild, Savior of the world, and we do praise Jesus, the Savior of the world. We'll get there. But Jesus said about the suffering of the wicked in hell, he said in verse 47 uh, of Mark chapter 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It, and there's a lot I would want to say here about waging war against the sin in your life because that's the context in which Mark 9 is found. So there's multiple strands of application that we could be making here. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That Jesus would say the worm does not die indicates that the Lord's enemies will lie in a perpetual state of decay, growing increasingly rotten, though never actually passing away. Uh, One author in the 16th century said, they are torments which will be everlasting and such as are experienced by the dying who, although they are always dying, will never be dead. This now will be the character of eternal death, always to die and never to be dead. And And there's an application here for us of the urgency of us evangelizing, of telling people that we love about the good God who hates sin and how they have sinned against him in pride and yet how God in love has made a way for them to be rescued from the judgment that they have earned for themselves and finding refuge in Jesus. Uh, We'll have many family gatherings coming up in the weeks to come. And I'm I'm just telling you what I'm just challenged by and chastened by myself. Like we, we are not, it may make some meals uncomfortable. It might make some relationships more strained than maybe you feel that they are currently. But let us labor to be clear. You will not dishonor God. You will not dishonor God. You might strain relationships. You might anger people. You might make things awkward. You will not dishonor God. If with love and respect and gentleness, you ask a loved one, could I please just tell you something that's very important to me, that I make sure that you have heard from me? Sometimes people who are unbelievers in their pride and in their utter foolishness and stupidity say things like, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me that's what's so terrifying, that's exactly right. If you are here today and you are living in prideful arrogance toward the God who made you and who rules over you, the same thing that happened to Herod is going to happen to you. Do not mistake God's patience with you as indifference towards your rebellion against him. But the fact that you are here today And if you are burdened, as I can tell looking, some of you are, if you are burdened, you are grieved, it would be right for you to be burdened and grieved by those whom you love. But if your loved ones are still breathing, there is time for them to turn because the fact that we are here and that your loved ones are still alive is an expression of God's great patience and mercy with sinners warning us of a dreadful outcome so that we might humble ourselves before him and turn and find life in him, the life that is truly life, the life that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because while the statement holds true that those who walk in pride he is able to humble, praise God that the whole reason we can be here, that we could be here come this morning, and we we mentioned it in the prayer time, I think somebody, I think you mentioned it when you got up here that we could be here laughing and encouraging and just sharing time and singing praise to God. The reason that we can be here doing all of that is that in God's great love and kindness, there is another way that God humbles the proud, and that is through the The good news of his son. That is the word that we're told here in verse twenty-four, continue to multiply and increase despite the rage and hatred of evil rulers. That word of the Lord that spread is a word about the good God who does not overlook sin or think little of sin, the God who punishes sin, but the God who in his Son Jesus has made a way for prideful sinners to find refuge from his coming wrath through the hunger and self-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus who delights to show mercy to proud enemies, to self-exalting, self-sufficient, self-promoting Herods, Jesus came to give mercy. If ever there was a human who had the right for uh, his pride to be as big as life, it was the one through whom all life came into being. If Jesus had come into the world and demanded that all serve him and that all serve him right now, it would not have been arrogant. It would have been perfectly right and appropriate. But Jesus, the one by whom and for whom all things exist, the one who upholds the universe with the word of his power, left the glorious splendor of his heavenly throne and he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Oh, how different the Lord Jesus was than King Herod. Herod grasped at deity. The Lord Jesus was his quality with God, a thing to be grasped, as we read from Philippians chapter 2. Herod caused the innocent to suffer for his own name and reputation. Jesus allowed himself to be despised and rejected and willingly endured suffering to free his enemies from the suffering that they had fully merited for themselves. Herod strolled into town with royal robes decked in silver. The Lord Jesus came into this world naked and poor with nowhere to lay his head, laid in a manger, Herod, the glory hog, was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Jesus, the mocked and shamed one, the crucified one, breathed his last and was vindicated in resurrection glory being highly exalted and given the name that is above every name so that at the name of the Lord Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To survey that wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, that is the way, that is the happy way. It is a hard way too, because he will continue to poke at your pride all the days of your Christian life. I know that well this week. But to survey that wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, that is the way to pour contempt on all our pride. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble, and he will humble each and every one of us. So if you're here this morning and you've not bowed the knee happily to the Lord Jesus, the Rescuer, the Savior, the one who made himself low to rescue you, oh, let me plead with you, let me appeal with you not to continue going on like Herod in your own way, doing your own thing. But consider the outcome. Consider what we've seen in this one man's life and consider the outcome of your trajectory of self-exaltation and be reconciled to God today. Behold Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom a people and turn to him, come to him today. I pray that each one who hears my voice It would be that humbling would be the worshipful, glad, awestruck humility described in another great hymn. Uh, John Newton, the former slave trader, you know him most from those wonderful words of amazing grace, but he wrote many hymns, and one of my favorites goes like this, alas, and did my savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? He did. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? He would. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon that tree? It was. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. How could we embrace that? How could we say our whole lives hinge? on that, and continue to contentedly march on in our pride. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us give God the glory. That's the takeaway for this message. There are many takeaways. There could be many takeaways. Please discuss the sermon throughout the week. But let us give God the glory. Let us cry out in the words of Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. When the day begins,
1: let us give God the
0: glory. And when I say give God the glory, I mean verbally communicating, declaring, expressing, acknowledging God to be the source of life that day because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. When when your work prospers and you're in seasons of comfort and ease, let us give God the glory. He is the one who establishes the work of our hands. When, When you're healthy, give God the glory. He is the one who provides all mankind with life and breath and everything. When you're ill, give God the glory because he will transform our lowly bodies in Jesus to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. When trials come and we feel that we've been dealt a bad hand in life, let us give God the glory. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ and the various trials that we know in this life will test the genuineness of our faith and be found on that final day to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. When we're, when we're commended for anything at all, let us give God the glory because it is God who is the one who is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you see anything commendable in another person, give God the glory for it because apart from him, we can do nothing. When your sin is exposed and you feel at the end of yourself, give God the glory because when our faith feels frail, he will hold you fast when you see any progress in holiness, any developing Christian maturity, give God the glory because it is his grace training you to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. When you're with the people of God, let us give God the glory. He is the one who has made us one in Christ. When you're in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that celebrates the very things that God hates, let us give God the glory because he will ransom us from this world and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. When your head hits the pillow at night, give God the glory because he gives to his beloved sleep. This will be our eternal vocation. This will be our eternal thrill in the kingdom of our Father when our hope is brought to consummation and when our faith is turned to sight. On that day, John sees the vision in Revelation 5, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. You, you, you were thinking that Citizens Bank Park was hopping until it w- wasn't. Oh, we get the loudest fans. No, they got nothing compared to this gathering in Revelation 5. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. That will be our eternal thrill to give glory to the God who has saved us. So until that great day, And oh, how we long for it. Until that great day. And as a signpost pointing the way to it, when we're together and when we're among unbelievers, when we're on the road marked with suffering and when the sun's shining and all as it could be throughout every season, we have every reason to give glory to the God who has shown us such great goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. We deserve, I mean, oh man, we deserve to be in hell. We deserve to be in hell, every one of us. And we have the hope of everlasting glory. We we know various trials. We know afflictions. We know sorrow. We know illness, physical illness emotional illness, mental illness. We know what it is to be weak, but we have a living hope because of Jesus and we don't deserve any of it. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to give you. We thank you that in Jesus we are complete and that we need not despair over the weakness of our flesh but that we have the hope that when Jesus appears we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. And we pray that now as we have that hope that we would endeavor in the power of your spirit to purify ourselves as Jesus himself is pure, that it would be our delight and our joy to give you great glory through our lives because great things have you done for us in Jesus. We ask this all in his name, amen.